Well, good evening, everybody. Glad you're able to be with us in person or uh, over our live stream. Welcome to our evening service here at the Rock Presbyterian Church. Let me give you a few announcements. Uh, many of these will be similar to what we heard this morning. Uh, we'll have prayer Wednesday nights here at the church and on Zoom, 630. Uh, ladies, you'll meet Thursday evening for your book study. Men, Friday morning, uh, Chick-fil-A, 615 for our book study. Uh, additionally, make a note that um, we now have a sign-up sheet for our Trump retreat on the 29th. We have an official time as well, 4.30 to 7 p.m., 4.30 to 7, Saturday the 29th. Uh, so if you want to bring a trunk, if you're able to come, if you uh, have friends that have food or side dishes or whatnot, uh, hot dogs and s'mores will be provided. Um, so it'll be a great time. We'll have fire pit available. Uh, we'll have basketball as well, if need be, and other games uh, as you bring uh, things to play with, toys to play with. So uh, Saturday the 29th, great time. You know, we will have a wonderful fall evening. That's all I have for us. Let's uh, now quiet our hearts prepare ourselves to worship our God. psalmist calls us to worship him. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Let your saints shout for joy. That's us. Let's go ahead and shout uh, using the hymn of praise you find at page five in your liturgy. O God, our help in ages past. Let me invite you to stand as we sing praise to our God.
us pray. Oh God, we come to you as our eternal home. We come to you as not just the housekeeper, but the builder. The one who builds the house, that home we, lo- we live in forever. We call it heaven. We call it the new heavens. We call it the new heavens and new earth. We call it the new Jerusalem. We call it what our hearts long for. We call it for that moment where we shall behold in the twinkling of an eye you and all your glory. Although we pray that that moment would come soon and yet we're here on earth. We're here where it's not quite so heavenly. Yet we ask that you would give us a taste of that heavenly city. You would give us a little taste, a foretaste, a teaser of the great new Jerusalem. We pray you do that now as we come praising your name and praying to you the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Be seated. Our Old Testament reading continues in the prophet Zechariah. We come slowly towards the end of this prophetic book. You'll recall we've been speaking here about that great day of the Lord. The day that looks on the one hand to the cross. The day that looks on the one hand to the last judgment. We now hear God himself declaring more. Beginning in uh, chapter 13, verse 4. We'll read through verse 9, the end of the chapter. Zechariah 13, 4 through 9. Let me encourage you to uh, not just put on your thinking cap, but put on your believing heart and trust this word as we hear it from the pen of Zechariah and the pen of our Lord. We're told that on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This is reading of Holy Scripture. May God bless the word to us. The house is word of blessing. It's only a blessing if you realize the way the Old Testament folks speak. Part of the great issue we have in reading Old Testament prophecy is we don't realize that the prophets are often jumping from one moment to the next. They're often jumping from one moment to the next, often jumping. As we see here in verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Of course, that should be familiar to any New Testament Christian. It's quoted in the New Testament of our Savior. You strike the shepherd, you kill that one. And the sheep are scattered. And of course, the sheep are scattered. The disciples of Christ bail. They, they go to their homes. They, they, the, on, on the day of crucifixion, they're not there, really. They flee. They doubt. And so in one sense, that is fulfilled in, in the moment of Christ's death. And yet, what do we have here in the very closing lines? They will call upon my name. This, this remnant, this one third. And I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. What is that talking about? What's that talking about? What it's talking about is simple. It's talking about the way in which you cry out to your God. It's talking about the way in which God makes his people his own. 
He makes you. He makes you somebody who says, the Lord is my God. He does that with us, with the weak material he has to work with. Us, our lives, our hearts. He does it with people who need to come and confess their sins. Let's do that now as we are guided by this call to confession we have in James 5, verse 16. We're told, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We have here very simply a call to confession, a call to prayer. It's what you and I are called to do every day to one another. It's what we're called to do as we come here as God's people. So take a few moments. Confess your sin. Take a few moments. Go to your God. Do business with him. And I'll pray for us as one body. Lord, your word tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great worth. And yet, if we weigh our hearts, if if I weigh my heart, we know that there is much unrighteousness in us. Lord, we therefore come. We we cannot come praying in our own self. We come praying in the, the greatness of Jesus Christ. We come asking you to forgive our sins because of his power, because of his righteousness. We come confessing and admitting that we are not as you call us to be. In our words, we have not spoken well of you, of our neighbors. We have not done well toward you or our neighbors. We have not thought well of you. We have not thought well of our neighbors. We ask that you would cleanse us for the sake of our Savior. In his name, we plead these things. Amen. Let me ask you to stand as we hear God's word of pardon from the Psalms. We're told the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Do you think God takes pleasure in you? The only way you can know that God takes pleasure in you is if you're a Christian. God takes pleasure in the humble. The psalmist says that part of God taking pleasure in you is that he makes you pretty. Do you think you're pretty? Gentlemen, maybe we don't use that word. Handsome, I suppose. Do you think you're handsome? God says, as a Christian, you're handsome, you're pretty in humility. He clothes you with the beauty of salvation. That's the gospel. And I declare to you that no matter how you feel, no matter your ugliness, no matter how you feel on the inside, that God declares you beautiful. Right here. He adorns the humble with salvation. If you look to Christ, that is yours, that beauty. Let's come now to confess our faith as Christians. His people will use the sort of catechism question and answer 27. I'll read the question. You respond with the answer. Dear Christian, in, in what did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. 
And we confess our sin. Let's respond, comforted, comforted, trusting our Savior. I invite you to turn to page six in your liturgy. Let's sing, Be Thou My Vision. It's in the red hymnal as well, number 642. Let me invite you to go with me into the throne room of our Lord as we come in prayer. Let us pray. Oh God, you have spoken. And it is done. And you have spoken. 
and the earth was thrown into existence. You have spoken and the waters were divided. You have spoken and the greater light and the lesser light. We call it the sun, the moon. You have put them in the heavens. You have spoken. And there was land and sea. You have spoken. And there were fishes. You have spoken. There were birds. You have spoken. And there were creatures. You have spoken. And there were humans. There were those made in your image and God uh, and, 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 and likeness. Adam himself, and then Eve, Lord, you have spoken and you have done. You have spoken and you have judged it well. We thank you that you have spoken not just in making us. You've not just spoken and then stopped speaking. But we thank we thank you. We ask that you would make our hearts ever more grateful that your word continues to speak. It speaks most clearly and cleanly in Jesus Christ. We thank you that the saints of old, the Apostles and the prophets, they look forward to that day and they wrote down. We thank you for those men you've inspired to pen the pages of Scripture. I thank you that you did not make them robots. You didn't make them unhuman, inhuman. And yet you also so superintended it that this is your word and we can trust. I pray that we would not worship a book as an idol, but rather we would worship this word as the only thing that gives life to us, not because the words are magical, Lord, but because you are marvelous. You are merciful. All that you do, all that is recorded here, all that's recorded on our hearts, in our lives, all that we can testify and witness about Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be captivated by your work and your words, by the way your Holy Spirit transforms us. We pray that you would be that transforming God, that your word would not return void, but your word would return filled, filled with our souls, filled with the hearts and the minds of our neighbors, filled with, filled with those precious Saints, that you've called to be yours. I pray, Lord, that you continue to refine us, even as your word has called us that you will. You continue to refine us as gold and silver is tried in the furnace. Whether that's the case in families, between husbands and wives, and refining their relationship. Whether that's the case between children and parents. Whether that's the case between brothers and sisters, even as we saw this morning with Dinah and her sadness. Dinah and her despair. I pray, Lord, that in the sight of injustice, we will not uh, be silent, but we will feel the kind of anger that Simeon and Levi felt, and yet we will take that anger to you, O Lord, as the God of all justice, the one who does what's right. We pray that we would not be like the world in our anger. We would not be like the world that loves to defile, but instead, Lord, we would come to you with our own defilement, and call you to purify us. We ask that you would make us clean. You would make our hearts whiter than snow. We pray, Lord, that you would make us here at the Rock a people for your own pleasure. We ask that you would continue to bring those souls who need to hear your word, whether that's families or individuals, you continue to bring them here to hear from your word. We pray, Lord, um, not just for those who, who might visit or those who might come, but we ask, Lord, that you would be with those among us who are stricken, those among us who are suffering. We pray for those who are chronically ill. Uh, we ask that you would comfort them. We pray 
for uh, our, our brother, Stephen Clark. We pray for our sister, Kathy DeBoard. We ask that you would be with them, that you would give comfort to those who take care of them, that you would provide uh, strength for soul and body alike, and that you would help us to look to that future heaven, as we'll see with Moses, that we can uh, look to what is invisible, the heavenly Jerusalem, you and your promises. We can look to what's invisible to, to sustain our life here on earth, to endure. Lord, we pray that you would make us an enduring people. And yet, we, we pray not just for our own sake, not just for uh, the sake of those who come to these four walls. We pray for uh, the, the cities around us, the community around us. We pray for the Atlanta area. And we ask that you might um, be with us as we travel around our neighbors, as we talk with them and walk with them, as we shop with them, as we uh, get our hair cut from them, as we interact with them. We pray that we would be that sweet aroma of the gospel that your word tells us that we are. And yet we pray for their good. We pray, given the upcoming election, that you would um, give leaders that are better than the ones that we have now. Better in understanding what your word calls good and what your word calls evil. What, by nature, we know. Written on our hearts, we know what's good and evil. We pray you would give us leaders who practice that, who reward what's good, who punish what's evil. Father, in all these ways, we come before you and ask that you would be a God who cares not just for us, not just for our neighbors, not just for this country, but for your whole world. And we trust that you will do that because we come to you in the name of Christ, asking these things and trusting that our great high priest will intercede for us. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. As we continue in our study, in this great chapter, this classic chapter, called by many the Hall of Faith, we'll be reading verse 23 through verse 28 of this chapter. We've looked at Abraham. We're going to look now at Moses, the second great hero mentioned in this uh, this hall of faith. Let's pay careful attention to the reading of God's word. It is the life blood of the soul. Let's hear from the author of Hebrews. Let's hear from our Lord. We're told that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God. It does neither. It endures forever. Let's, let's pray. Let's ask God's blessing upon the reading, the preaching, the loving, and the trusting of his word. Father, show us here the faith of Moses, and yet show us 
the one to whom Moses looked. So it's the object of Moses' faith, Jesus Christ, your son. Call us to him. Call us back to him. Call us deeper into Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. There's one, um, one difference, I think, between grandparents and parents. There's probably more than one. You can tell me afterwards. But there's at least one. There's at least one difference between grandparents and parents. Parents generally think that when they bring kids into the world, it's an amazing thing. Parents tend to think, child, my child, awesome, wonderful place. It's going to be great. It's going to, they're going to grow up. It's going to, you know, have a, a couple of issues, but I'm so happy they're in the world now. And grandparents sometimes, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this. I don't think I am. Grandparents sometimes think, this is a hard world to bring kids into. It's a hard world to bring kids into. You see this throughout history. You know, it's a hard world to bring kids into during the Reformation. You know, it's October. We're, we're looking back a little bit, the history of, of the Christian church, particularly the Reformation. It, it was hard to bring kids into the world for Abraham Kuyper, as we looked at this, this morning in Sunday school. All the changes in the 19th century, the modern world. It's hard to bring kids into that world. And in our day, in our day when, when the principles of God's word that we're made in God's image and we're called to love his way is when those principles are kind of thrown in the trash heap, when those principles are denied and laughed at, it can seem like a dangerous world. It can seem like a world you might think twice about bringing kids into. Well, it's that context we come to this kid. We come to this guy. We come to Moses. We come to this passage. It covers 120 years in the life of Moses. You'll notice if you look at your little outline, I have kind of a, an age chart or three points if you want. Three points. Baby Moses, grown up Moses, and then kept Moses. It's encouraging because in, in a few verses, in five or six verses, what do we have? We have 120 years. That's why this is deeply encouraging because it's encouraging no matter if you're a newborn. It's encouraging also if you're 120 years old. I don't think you all are there yet. But if you're a newborn, this is a word for you. If you're 120 years old, here's a word for you. If you're anywhere in between, here's a word for you. Now, I'm not going to tell the story of each year of Moses' life. Don't worry, we'll be here too long. But these verses highlight, they highlight the major crisis moments in the life of Moses. They highlight the three big ones. Three crisis moments of decision. We've seen that in our study in this chapter, that faith is seen in the crisis. Faith is seen in the dire straits. It's seen in the times of trial. But with Moses, we see that faith can blossom no matter the society you're in. That's a very crucial lesson for us because we're tempted to believe that faith blossoms best in certain cultures. Faith blossoms best in certain nations or societies. Don't believe that lie. That's a deceitful lie. That's a deceitful lie that somehow it's easier to be a Christian in America than it is in China. I guarantee you that if you were to talk to the Chinese brothers and sisters that we have as Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ over there, they would say, it's a lot harder to be a Christian in America than it is in China. And we think the opposite. 
We think, oh, we have so much freedom here. We, we, it's easier to be a Christian because more people talk about Jesus. The government's not uh, attacking you. And yet, every culture, every culture, every nation, every time, every moment, every part of your lifespan, it is possible for God to work faith in you. Or to put it differently, don't be pessimistic about God's power. So we look at that. That's by way of introduction. Let's get into the life of Moses in our text here. We begin with baby Moses. Verse 23. Verse 23. We're told that by faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Think about the world in which baby Moses was born. He was born in a country under totalitarian control. He was born in a country that had a state-sponsored religion. Pharaoh, the demigod. Pharaoh, the man who thought he was God. He was born in Egypt. He was born in a nation where every male child was post-birth aborted. It was the grave threat to the people of God. Pharaoh believed he could initiate genocidal demographic warfare on the Hebrews. We know a lot about demographics these days. You can chart the number of kids that are born. Or, or are we kind of replacement level? Are we kind of getting more kids every year than uh, are dying off? Well, Pharaoh was looking at the Egyptian math, and he was saying, if I can kill the Hebrew children, then I can eliminate this problem we're having. What's interesting here is that we're told, verse 23, working kind of backwards to forwards, we're told they're not afraid of the king's edict. We're told that Moses' mom and dad were not scared of the totalitarian government. Why? Oh, this is fascinating. It's right there. Here's the reason they do what they do. It's a weird reason. Because they saw that the child was beautiful. I don't know if you ever stopped and thought through that. The little logical train here. They hide the kid. They're willing to uh, go against Pharaoh. They're willing to outwit the secret police, the KGB of Pharaoh. Uh, They're willing to go against the Gestapo because Moses has a pretty face. Is that what that means? I will say, um, you know, I, I, um, I don't want to put this. I'm not a baby person as of yet. Maybe I will be. Um, I hope to be. But I, even I know you don't go up to a baby boy or a baby girl in a mother's arms and say, wow, your baby's really ugly. Because most babies are not ugly. Most babies, you get the slime, the term for it, you get the, the stuff off of a baby, and they're actually pretty. They're, they're, very, they're very pretty. Most babies are beautiful. That's the point. So, so what does this mean? Why does the author of Hebrews say this is the reason they were able to defy Pharaoh and hide him three months? I don't think the language of beauty is talking about his cheekbones, the balance of his faith, the proportion of his face. I don't think this is saying he had a cute smile. Rather, Ecclesiastes tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its season. I think that points out what his parents are looking at. They are looking at the fact that God has given to them a child made in his image and likeness.
They look at Moses. They look at their baby boy. I mean, they don't know that he's going to lead the people away. They don't know that he's going to be a great leader. What do they know? They know their Bibles. And like any good Jew, they would have heard, they would have read the opening chapters of the Bible. They would have heard of Adam being crowned with glory and honor. They would have been told that every human life is precious. They would have been understanding that God crowns us with dignity and strength. They would have read about Dinah, as we heard this morning, and they would have recoiled with horror because of the doctrine of the image of God. In other words, the mom and dad of Moses show their faith by not thinking first about Pharaoh's secret police. They would not fear first the servant of Satan, but they would look at Moses and see in him the hand of the creator. To put it very simply, they live by faith in God's word. They trusted that he would preserve this child. What's very fascinating, I think, for us as Christians is that we don't think a lot about his parents. I mean, if I were even to ask you what are their names, you might not be able to give them to me. It's, it's hidden away in a dark corner of Exodus. Their names are Amram and Jochebed. You may have known that. But even if you know it, I'd imagine you didn't give much thought to that fact. They're basically unknown. They're barely mentioned in the Bible. But we're told right here, the first part of Moses' faith is actually not Moses' faith. You see that, right? The author does not begin with the faith of Moses. Not really the faith of Moses. He begins with the faith of the parents of Moses. He begins with the faith of mom and dad, Amram and Jochebed. I think this may be a very important lesson for for Christian parents, Christian grandparents, and just Christians in general. What does real Christian faith produce? Produce. What does real Christian faith produce in the people you meet? What does real Christian faith produce for a mom and her dad? Well, moms and dads, I think you understand that it does not produce little Christian boys and girls automatically. It does not automatically, magically produce little Christian boys and girls. It often can. That's to God's glory. But real Christian faith, always, 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 the Christian mom, the Christian dad, by extension, the Christian more generally, if they rest in the trust of God's promises, if they rest in the truth of what God has said, if they rest without fear in what God has given, they are free. And they breathe that freedom. They breathe that trust everywhere they go. Supremely at home. We saw it this morning with Jacob and Dinah. Leah and Dinah. It's an absolute truth that your boys and girls breathe in the spiritual atmosphere you breathe out. They breathe in the spiritual atmosphere you breathe out. And if you're an anxious person, if you're always fearful, and if in your anxiety you don't entrust yourself to God, in your fear you're not faithful, your kids will, bring, will breathe in anxiety. They'll breathe in fear. The old Danish philosopher, you know I try to barely quote Danish philosophers from the pulpit. Forgive me this one time. The old Danish philosopher Kierkegaard once wrote, the worst thing in the world for a child to have is not a humanist. 
you might read that atheist or whatever you want to think. The worst thing in the world for a child to have is a dad who talks about Jesus, but with every breath he breathes at home gives evidence that he does not trust Jesus. That's why it's fascinating here that the first lesson we learn about the faith of Moses is not the faith of Moses. The first crisis point in the life of Moses and his faith is the faith of mom and dad, Amram and Jochebed. And look, if you don't have kids or your kids are grown up, uh, this is still relevant to you because you still breathe out something. You still breathe out some spiritual atmosphere wherever you go. And people are sucking it down. It's the atmosphere of faith. Second, we see grown up Moses. Grown up Moses, beginning in verse 24. We get to Moses now, okay? By faith, Moses, we read, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What do we have here? You know the story? You know the story, don't you? Moses, you've seen the prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments, one of those two probably. Moses is walking around town. He spots an Egyptian beating, assaulting a Hebrew, one of his own people. He reacts just like Simeon and Levi this morning. He retaliates. He kills the Egyptian. He buries the body. A few days later, he's walking out around town. Moses, the uh, <clears throat> royal uh, Hebrew, grown up in Pharaoh's court. He walks around town. He sees two of his own people fighting, Hebrew and Hebrews. He intervenes, and one guy says to Moses, you're going to do it to me? You're going to kill me? You're going to knife me like you killed the Egyptian? And in a moment he had not planned for, he did not go out that morning saying, I have to make a decision. But in a moment he didn't plan for, Moses has to make a choice. He has to make a choice. He has to make a monumental choice. I'm sure for Moses it, it seemed unplanned. I'm sure for Moses it felt like he responded with gut intuition. But though Moses had to make a split-second decision, I'm, I'm out of here. God had been preparing him for that split-second moment his entire life. God had been working in Moses. We're told that Moses made a huge choice. We're told that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, verse 25, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He committed himself to identify with God's people long term. He did not choose the short-term pleasures of the palace of Egypt. And of course, you might think, well, that's a split-second decision. He, he made it. You know, the, he killed the guy. And then the next day, somebody else calls him out. And he said, I got to get out of here. And to him, it felt like it was a momentary, instantaneous decision. But God had been preparing his gut and his faith and his heart and his life for that moment. Now in passing, let me just note verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Just in passing, notice that this is the New Testament talking about an Old Testament figure, Moses. This Old Testament figure 
is looking to Jesus Christ. He was looking to Jesus Christ way back in the day before Christ came on the scene at all. Do you begin to see how the Bible is interwoven? How the Bible sees that there was actually a church in the Old Testament. That there were believers in the Old Testament. And those believers looked in a shadowy way to Jesus Christ. The same Jesus you look to. In some shadowy fashion, Moses' willingness to be with God's people was like Christ identifying with our shame. Like Christ identifying with Donna's shame from this morning. Moses endured, we are told, as seeing him who is invisible. Now that day comes for all of us, I think. That day comes for everybody who's here. One day or another. You may have grown up in a home that knows God. You may have had godly parents, like Moses did. You may have never doubted Jesus in your life. You may try to live for him. You may say you love him. You may want to love him better. But moments of crisis come... And they reveal what you've actually been trusting your whole life. Have you been looking to the cross? Have you been looking to the tomb? See, the friends, the crisis is always sudden. For Moses, it was a sudden moment. The crisis is always sudden, but your response is never sudden. Your response is always like plaque built up. Your response is the result of buildup in your soul. Your response is always the fruit of months and years. It's the unveiling of whether you have considered the reproach of Christ worth more than passing pleasure. Now observe, just for one second, where Moses was looking. Verse 25. He was looking to the people of God. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. We are told here that Moses, in one sense, was looking to God's people. But we're told also, verse 26, he was looking to the reward. What's the reward? The promise of God. You see, Moses looked in two places. He had two eyes. He looked in two places. He looked to God's people, and he looked to God's promise. He looked to God's people. He looked to God's promise. He looked to God's reward, and he looked to God's remnant. That's what faith always does. That's what faith always does. It looks to God's people, and it looks to God's promise. It looks to the one who would deliver his people from Satan. That's what Moses was looking to. The one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would deliver his people from their ultimate Pharaoh, who delivers you from your bondage to sin and slavery, who brings you to new life. Those two things are always connected. And notice that Moses does math. Moses does math. This is verse 26. So the math that Moses does, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He calculated up in his mind. Here's where it's worth if I get 50 years in Egypt in a cushy palace. Here's what 50 years of great palace Egyptian food is like. Here's what 50 years of being a celebrity is worth. 50 years of being influential in in the world. 50 years of being a celebrity. Having the privilege, he he added all of it up. And then he compared it, we are told, to the reproach of Christ. I mean, if you're trying to balance that equation, it'd be hard to balance that one, wouldn't it? We hear reproach, we think that's not good. We hear shame, 
Who here signs up for shame of Christ versus a whole life on earth of, of uh, wealth and, and honor and celebrity and fame and everybody loving you? But Moses did. Moses tabbed it all up. He compared the wealth of Egypt to the eternal weight of glory found in God. The light momentary affliction of this life. The tiny baby suffering that he had to undergo for his 120 years. He added all that up. And he realized that there is so much more found in Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be a boy or girl, a man, a woman, a grandfather, a grandmother of faith, you need to make the same math equation. You'll have to wrestle with it in your life. I don't know when, I don't know where, but every one of us has to at some point in time. It's what Christ says in the Gospel of Luke. You may lose houses and friends and family, but you will gain far more in my kingdom. Eternal life. It's what the Chinese church knows. Eternal life, even if there is persecution, is worth far more. Moses chose the slave people. Moses chose the wretched people. He chose his... Notice, by the way, it does not just say he chose his ethnic people. He chose the people of God. Pure side note, he chose God's people. So we have Moses here. Grown up. Baby Moses. Grown up Moses. Finally, thirdly. We have uh, what I call kept Moses. He's kept. He's kept by keeping. He's kept faithful by God by keeping. We're told in verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It's interesting to notice just the parallel here with his parents. The author deliberately uses the same verb. His parents were not afraid. Verse 23, they were not afraid of the king. And just like mom and dad, verse 27, when it comes to a crisis point, Moses is also not afraid of the anger of the king. Very similar language used there. That's deliberate in these few verses. It's not accidental. The author is trying to tell you, hey, your parent example matters. Your example matters for your kids. Your kid's example matters for their kids. The people you come into contact are noticing you. They're noticing you. Are you afraid of the king? Are you not afraid of the king? Are you afraid of this world? Are you not afraid of this world? That matters. That matters. But think about it, though. 40 years later, Moses, 80 years old. What does he discover? What does he discover? He discovers... Finally, what God's been preparing for him for his whole life. He discovers that God has been using the first 79 years of his life to prepare him for something grand. That's an encouragement. I'm not yet 79, but I think for those of y'all who might be a little bit closer, isn't that a great encouragement? If you feel like you've, you've not done great your first 79 years, What's the encouragement? The encouragement is simple. God can, God does use every part of your life. He uses infant life. He uses baby life. He uses young life. He uses teenage life. He uses uh, adult life. He uses middle-aged life. He uses old life. He uses grown-up life. He uses all life for his wise and caring 
purposes. And that's why we can see here in verse 27 and verse 28 that Moses is able to keep the Passover. He's able to sprinkle the blood. He's able, in other words, to trust in God's atonement, to trust in sacrifice, to trust that God's word is really true. How could he do that? How can you do that for millions of people? I mean, this works for a million people. It saves a whole nation. That's a big deal. He could do that because from age 40 to age 80, what was Moses doing? He was tending flocks. He was experiencing what many of God's people experience, what many of God's people in the Bible experience, what maybe some of y'all are experiencing. He experienced for 40 years A dead-end job. He experienced for 40 years feeling like he had so many gifts and so many talents and he had been raised by a godly family. He had been raised in Pharaoh's household. He had all of this experience. He had desires and dreams. And yet, what was he doing? He was looking after his father-in-law's sheep in Midian. That's great. Not what Moses signed up for, maybe. He had made this great choice to look to Christ. And where does it end him up? It ends him up in in Midian. He may have thought it frustrating until God's purposes were all in place. Why did God have him do that? Because Moses was going to be looking after a million of his heavenly father's sheep. That's why he cared for a few hundred of his father-in-law's sheep. Isn't that amazing? That God's goal for you might be a great mission. That God's goal for you might be a great mission when it's not the prime of your life, as it was with Moses. Moses does his most amazing work after the year of 80. He keeps the Passover. He sprinkles the blood. He shows, in a sense, his greatest act of faith when his life is played out, as we might think. But God's plan is not our plan. Do you, do you believe that God's plan is actually counterintuitive sometimes to the track you expect your life to live on? We need to learn that God is in the office working when he seems like he's invisible. That's what Moses does. Verse 27, as he is away from Egypt, as he is tending sheep for 40 years, he endured as seeing him who is in visible. You need to realize that God's working in the fields when it seems like he's the most invisible. Moses entrusted himself to the one who was invisible. That's the key difference between faith and faith, or rather faith and not having faith. Lack of faith looks at the visible, the horizontal plane only. People, stuff, things, what's going on in the world, And it thinks the things that are visible are the things that really count. You look around this world. eh, What looks big must be big. What looks small must be bad. But faith looks vertically. Faith looks to God. Faith understands that what is invisible is the real deal. It's a great word from Hebrews. But as we close, you might be tricked into thinking that there's an application here that's not here. Let me be very clear about this. You might be tricked into thinking the application of this text is, I need faith like Moses. 
as your friends say, they find out you go to church. I wish I had your faith. You're a really faithful person. I wish I was like you. That's not the point of this text at all. The point of this is not that you need Moses' faith. You need Moses' Savior. You don't need the faith of Moses. You need the Savior of Moses. That's the reality. Don't fall in the trap of looking at Moses and forgetting the Lord of Moses. It's why really we need to skip down. You know, sometimes these chapter divisions really are awful. This is one of the cases where it's awful. They're great sometimes. They're awful other times. They're not, not inspired, by the way. But skip down to chapter 12. Skip down and read uh, and see what the author of Hebrews says. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses like Moses, let us run like Moses with endurance. And yet, what does he say in verse 2? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, maybe as a kid you hear in Sunday school, you need to have faith like Moses. You're not a kid anymore. You're a grown-up. I don't care how old you are. You're a grown-up now as a Christian. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to him. And realize that as you look to him, you will endure. You will be given the strength to make the choices. You will be given the ability to do the gospel math equation and consider the reproach of Christ as worth more than all the treasures of Egypt. That's what faith does, whether you're a newborn or whether you're in the pit of peril. Trust in Christ. That's very simple. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we come as those who look back, who hear your word. We hear the way Moses had faith, the way his parents had faith. And yet, Father, do not give us a way of faith. Give us the faithful one, we pray. Give us Jesus Christ. We ask that you would increase our faith in him. You would help us to crawl and cling to the cross of Calvary. And that as we go forth this week, we might exude the perfume of the gospel the aroma of salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, let me invite you to stand. Let me ask you to turn to page 7 in your liturgy. If you prefer, it's 95 in the red hymnal. Let's sing our closing uh, hymn, Though Troubles Assail Us.
the cup now and receive your Lord's great blessing. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance. That means smile. May the Lord smile upon you and grant you his peace. Amen. See you next week.